Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of health IT. I'm your host, Sarah Seibert. On today's episode, we're joined by members of the Veterans Health Administration's Innovation Ecosystem, a unit within the Department of Veteran Affairs dedicated to exploring innovative technologies and new methods for delivering care. The Innovation Ecosystem, or IE, leverages the collective power of innovation champions from across VA, academia, nonprofit, and industry to operationalize innovation in the nation's largest integrated healthcare system. And we're bringing to you a variety of those voices right here, right now, in this episode. That's right. Joining us to talk about this work is a full group of innovators all collaborating on various initiatives. Robert Godell, I'm a Presidential Innovation Fellow with the VHA Innovation Ecosystem. Amanda Purnell, a psychologist by training and a clinical data specialist within the VHA Innovation Ecosystem. I'm Ann Bailey. I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist by training and an emerging tech clinical specialist with the VHA Innovation Ecosystem. Arash Harzan, I'm a cardiologist by training and practice in Atlanta and a senior innovation fellow uh, with the VHA Innovation Ecosystem. One thing today's guest told me about the innovation ecosystem's approach to projects is that despite its spelling, there's no I in innovation. And it makes sense. The VHA innovation ecosystem has been around and has grown and adopted uh, new family members over the course of time with the goal of fostering innovation from the ground, enabling internal intrapreneurs to test out new ideas, spread and scale them, and to empower partnerships with external collaborators to solve important problems. So the VHA Innovation Ecosystem has been around for about 10 years now in various iterations with the goal of empowering new ideas and thinking about the art of the possible. The main areas within the VHA Innovation Ecosystem are the VHA Innovators Network, which was in fact also developed by another Presidential Innovation Fellow, Andrea Ippolito, and the Diffusion of Excellence, which these are two different programs, one intended to start on early stage internal ideas and building them up, empowering people, and then spreading and scaling, noticing the gap of best practices. Everyone cites the uh, 17-year gap between establishment of a best practice and scale. And our, our goal is to uh, decrease uh, from 17 years to, to much less than that. Um, and it's been exciting to be part of uh, this group as it's evolved over time. The collaboration function of the innovation ecosystem ultimately ensures veterans receive a well-rounded experience for their care and benefits. This is also one of the benefits of the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program which pairs top innovators from all sectors with top innovators in government. What's really exciting for me uh, about the PIF program is I was trained as a neuroscientist, but found myself publishing and perishing in academia. And so with a family history of mental health concerns, I really didn't believe my academic research was going to help people. I met colleagues at MIT who were interested in building digital health technologies to help measure and manage the physiology of mental health concerns. And given the public health crisis of suicide and addiction, the PIF program was a way to affect change at a national level that seemed deeply needed. So by joining uh, digital health efforts first at the FDA as a PIF in 2019, it really offered a window into why startups like ours struggle at the interface of health and wellness. 
despite the immense amount of data and funding that's now available. So what's really amazing about the VHA innovation ecosystem is allows me to drill into how we can build and scale and test digital health innovations uh, for the largest integrated health system in the country. And as I've continued on as a PIF, it's really been my PIF colleagues that are designers, engineers, product developers, scientists, who are all highly driven to help with uh, innovation of this type and, and at VA. Parson's background as a cardiologist is contributing to unique experiences and improving veteran care. You know, my background's in heart and vascular disease. So I think, you know, there was a, an immediate draw just based on that alone to the VA. Um, the veterans are, by some estimates, twice as likely to, to develop heart disease as non-veterans and also more likely to have adverse outcomes uh, because of heart disease as non-veterans. So it's definitely, uh, the VA is a target-rich environment, and it's also a place where, you know, and I think a, a lot of people, myself included, you know, outwardly didn't assume that the VA, you know, would be an innovative place because, you know, you think of government and bureaucracy, and there is a lot of that, but uh, the advantage is that, you know, being like the largest integrated system in the country where we are able to you know, manage the patient care journey really end to end by being the payer, the the care delivery network really lets us um, find you know really novel ways of improving care all across the spectrum and uh, in ways that you know other places can't you know uh, afford to do it. So you know for us one example has been in our virtual cardiac uh, rehab program that in a lot of private institutions uh, you know really isn't manageable. It's not affordable. But in the VA, because we, you know, are responsible for the care costs, uh, all the care costs for the patients, we're able to invest in our own capital and resources in the building uh, program that, you know, in the private sector isn't yet reimbursed by uh, insurers or Medicare. And then, you know, for me, that became a really easy, you know, fit for the innovation ecosystem. There was sort of like the sun that I was drawn to because uh, once you start poking around trying to, you know, um, stir some things up, you, you sort of. You know, uh, we'll get led back to uh, the innovation program in one way or another, because at some point people will just you know, not know what to do with you, with all your crazy ideas, and they'll say, well, talk to the innovation guys, maybe they can help you out. So that's kind of you know, how I ended up you know, where I am, both the VA as well as the innovation program. By integrating diversity into the innovation lifecycle, the team can quickly scale up solutions and enhance the quality of digital health technologies that ultimately benefit veteran care. In my experience, I'm, it's, it's a little bit pithy, but I, I kind of like saying there's no I in innovation. It's absolutely necessary to build teams. And sometimes the expertise does not lie internal to the VA or the capacity does not lie internal to the VA. And so you know, we care deeply, as I, as I hope is clear through our conversation about serving veterans. And the way that we can do that the best is to find the right people with the right technologies, with the right disciplinary background, with the right capabilities. Sometimes those people are internal to the VA, and we want to empower those people, give them the time and space and resources, and highlight their work. And sometimes those people are external to the VA, and we want to enable and catalyze quickly on capabilities available 
and ideally you'll partner with the best of the best for our veterans. Collaboration is absolutely necessary for being successful in a in any large question. So when we're thinking how do we move the needle on really gnarly questions like maintaining resilience and mental health and preventing veteran suicide, the only way that we can do that is by connecting broadly and widely with a variety of different stakeholders, with different kinds of technologies, testing those different technologies, allowing uh, you know, innovative uses of various technologies, seeing how they work for which veterans, for what use cases, and evaluating how it might work well for some veterans in some areas under some use cases and not for other veterans with other areas under other use cases. So it's absolutely essential that we think broadly and creatively as there are significant healthcare problems that continue to persist. And it is through collaboration that we can work together to solve these significant problems. So VHA Innovation Ecosystem team members collaborate extensively internally, but they also work across government, including the Departments of Defense and Health and Human Services. You know, I was encouraged to start a digital health council to help FDA bring together the relevant stakeholders in digital health from Veterans Affairs, Department of Defense, Health and Human Services, even NASA. And it's really been my colleagues as PIFs who have kept this digital health council going and expanded on its original goal, certainly during the pandemic. What that did was it actually helped to build the relationships with Veterans Affairs while I was still at, at FDA, and then helped me to realize that the, the, the problems that we were working on at FDA could really be unlocked if we worked more closely with our colleagues at VA. And then you know, certainly toward the benefit of veterans deserve the very best in care possible. So how do we get there? And despite all we're spending on healthcare in America, life expectancy has been going down or stagnating even before the pandemic. The impacts of addiction and suicide are being felt across every demographic and community in the country, and the problem is only getting worse in children. So the, the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program enables us to work across agencies tackling challenges in new ways with truly inspiring leaders like those of the VHA Innovation Ecosystem and across VA. So we, there are a bunch of us at VA. And what's really been so really amazing is with Anne, Amanda, and Arash, uh, we're working with our colleagues at other parts of VA in a very organizational-wide effort to evolve digital healthcare more broadly. And it's because we're all able to work so well together that with our patients showing up after a career in military service, we're not already knowing the impacts on their health and wellness. They're not always knowing the impacts on our health and wellness. But by working together, we can support service members and even their families, like people who care for them for things like burnout across their entire lives, and then use VA truly as a model learning health system uh, for the whole country. It's the largest health uh, system in the country. So it allows us all as colleagues to ask, how do we do this work, um, not just for VA, not just with FDA? or with DOD, but how do we do this work as an example for what's truly possible in healthcare more broadly? And that's certainly where I'm so inspired, you know, when I can have a conversation with Anne or Amanda Rosh, and they take something and run with it. Uh, and then a week later, 
they bring back, you know, all the great things that they've been able to accomplish in, in a very short period of time. So they truly are innovators at heart. And, uh, and, and the PIF program, just I'm so grateful, allows me to meet folks like them and allows us to sort of roll up our sleeves and get to work in, in really challenging problems that weren't able to work well together. They would be very uh, impenetrable in terms of progress. As we know, COVID-19 required federal agencies to quickly pivot to address new demands. As part of this shift, Harzand outlines VHA's innovation ecosystem's direct involvement in ramping up new health services and solutions, like its telehealth capabilities. The VA was in a really interesting position when COVID began because we were one of the first systems, you know, dating back 10 or more years to have uh, rolled out telehealth, you know, broadly speaking, and that, that word means different things to different people, but we'll just lump, you know, virtual, you know, care, remote care under the banner of telehealth for the purpose of the conversation. But the VA had led the way there. And so we were really poised to pivot, you know, rather quickly to providing or from, uh, to pivot away from providing in-person care when we were required to do so in March and April of last year. So we had that sort of backdrop. Ironically, what the VA realized was you know, even with the head start that we had, we were definitely not uh, geared towards providing uh, virtual care at a scale that we had never done before. You know, we increased virtual video visits uh, from about a thousand a week to over about forty thousand visits a week. You know, over the course of you know a matter of months, and so the system had to really adapt its infrastructure, its training, its capacity to be able to offer that. And we, you know, all were able to sort of be a part of the process and also take advantage of the tools that the VA had already made available and also was expanding on. Our virtual cardiac uh, rehab program by design was a virtual program. It was being delivered remotely. So for us, it was a really easy pivot to be able to just, you know, really keep doing what we had, what, what we had been doing. And I'm sort of in a unique place because I practice both at the VA here in Atlanta, but I'm also... Um, you know, on faculty at Emory University where I see patients as well. And, you know, the transition to virtual care happened, you know, pretty much everywhere, uh, including Emory. But the speed and the uh, efficiency which would have happened uh, really, you know, it was night and day. I mean, the VA really just was able to pivot like a light switch compared to, you know, what uh, other sites at Emory had, uh, you know, and this isn't a criticism, but they really had to think a lot more deeply about all the you know, foundational pieces they had to put together to even begin delivering virtual care. And I think, you know, they responded as other systems did, you know, very effectively, but the VA was kind of already there and ready to go. So it was a really interesting transition for us because we were really, you know, well positioned to, to meet that demand when uh, the time came. A large aspect of the innovation ecosystem's COVID-19 response was and continues to be leveraging data to inform learning, research, and development. Purnell outlines how. It is often said, and it is, I think, true that the VHA is in a unique position to lead healthcare because of the rich data that we have access to, including electronic health record data, data from a variety of devices and other forms, as well as veteran-related data sets that we have access to. So some of the work that is happening in the VHA innovation ecosystem, Rob is correct to note that none of these things happen with a single person. Uh, there are many dozens of people working on how to best leverage 
VHA data to serve veterans. And some of those ways are to bring data safely and securely you know, into VHA data assets, to connect data sets together, to bring new insights, and to test and pressure test technology that can allow for data sharing in a secure methodology. So one of these areas of interest is synthetic data, which is artificial data that can be created by developing a model of the original authentic data, learning about the relationships internal to that data, and then creating a completely new data set which has no PHI or PII, but which maintains the internal relationships. This allows for sharing of data you know, internal to the VA for learning and development and truly being a healthcare system that engages in data and learns from data. So synthetic data is one way that we're looking at that. We're also certainly exploring machine learning and artificial intelligence. That one project that we're involved in is surfacing and using AI and machine learning to identify individuals who may be experiencing long COVID or post-COVID. The, uh, the terminology changes day by day because the definitions on this are changing and we want to be able to provide care on the ground as we go. So using data strategically to provide care in a meaningful fashion. So this includes a variety of different kinds of data sets, digital health or wearable data being one really important newer data set that we're trying to bring in and understand the value so that we can provide the very best care to our veterans. If we surface really good data, we can understand how different veterans have different ways of reacting and responding to different interventions. And by using objective data, we can then empower a clinical decision uh, to have a conversation between a provider, a nurse, whomever's speaking with the veteran in the moment to say, for you specifically, veteran X, we see that you have a 12% likelihood of developing long COVID. These medications are more likely to be optimized for you based on your metabolic pathways. And being able to leverage data in order to have that clinical decision. It's definitely not the case where data will force a certain care pathway, but data can better inform care pathways and allow for decisions to be made based on data that's tailored to a specific veteran in the room. Goodell has focused much of his work on new uses of biometrics for wearables and medical devices. These new offerings have enabled VHA to fully understand how COVID-19 affected veterans, as well as how to leverage data to better inform their health needs. Yeah, what's interesting is that many wearables today, for instance, is an area that I focus on given uh, my work over the last decade. Many wearables today are both wellness and medical devices, but without clearly developed pathways into existing clinical workloads, even when uh, the device has an FDA-cleared medical claim. So with the impacts of COVID-19, they presented a really interesting challenge and opportunity. There are millions of users having data that goes back years. 
how can we look at the effects of the infection and recovery of uh, the virus, but also of the overall pandemic, uh, especially along a large population of veterans? And without knowing how the virus was going to specifically affect someone, that baseline data is really invaluable on questions of heart and lung functions, but also activity, sleep, and stress. So the most promising uh, uses are those that help with existing care referrals, you know, whether for weight, weight loss, cardiac function, um, mental health concerns. The data can really support the referral uh, that can be made into care. And then the care team decides what to do based on typical medical assessments. So with so many efforts from amazing folks in the clinics, folks like Laraj, the data can support workflows into wellness coaching, to losing weight, managing that stress, changing sleep behaviors, or to help identify a cardiac concern that the individual may not know, or help with cardiac rehabilitation with Arash, who's really a national leader in his work in Atlanta. And then finally, things like sleep and stress can almost think of those challenges as, as wellness-based today. We would all like to be sleeping better and stressing a little less, especially with the effects of the pandemic. So how can that help us understand the needs of this veteran as compared to other veterans in the general population? So things like precision brain health remains a particular focus, and the physiology of the brain is well-established in the science, but it's not well-known by the general public or the average veteran. So uh, this allows us to really get into things like sensitivity and specificity of any measurement from a wearable device that may not be perfect today. But the trends and the comparative analytics can really help us to ask the right questions and with folks in the field like Arash to hold those technologies accountable. In addition to all these technologies mentioned, virtual reality is impacting some of this work. Bailey is a leader of VHA's recent strides in VR for clinical applications. It's something that we're incredibly excited about and continue to see grow exponentially. Four years ago or so, there were a few pilots that were that were slowly starting and, and had very little um, support on, not from leadership, but just how do we do this? How do we stand it up? How do we get the equipment? How do we get it to the veterans? What are we trying to find out? Versus today, you know, we have a community of practice of over 200 frontline staff. We've gotten buy-in and engagement from the program offices, and we're about to stand up one, potentially two pilots in completely different areas, getting virtual reality into the hands of our veterans to see, one, if they even like it. Do they find it usable? Do they find it helpful? And then two, how does that impact health outcomes in different areas? And, and do our clinicians like it? Does it, does it easily implement into, into care? And some of the areas that we've seen the most focus on are chronic and acute pain management. So are we able to distract? Are we able to immerse veterans into enjoyable experiences to help decrease their perception of pain? We've also seen a lot, particularly during during COVID in our community living centers where our patients are, are very much in the same place and it's hard to have visitors come in and it's hard for them to get out because of restrictions related to safety and the pandemic. We've seen a lot of impact on anxiety and boredom and, and depression when we're able to place them into these virtual and, and much more enjoyable in the moment environments. You know, we're able to allow them to hike through the mountains of, of the Carolinas or to go visit the beach or even, you know, travel to other countries and things like that and have much more enjoyable experiences. We also have virtual reality in, in procedural settings and also augmented reality in surgical settings. So testing those things and and getting them into the hands of our clinicians 
so that they can see how um, using this altered reality can help impact the care that they're able to deliver. We are hopeful to, to get more and more into the spaces of physical therapy um, and allowing our veterans to take these devices into their homes and complete their care in a way that their clinicians can follow along with their progress. And the veterans also can have these virtual assistants to help make sure that they're, they're doing the, their rehabilitation properly and, and frequently as prescribed. We were looking at stepping into the space of creative arts therapy. Are we able to allow veterans from all over the country to meet in one group virtually and, and complete art projects or go to the opera together or, or different things like that? And just continuing to explore the, the use cases, we say this all of, the, all of the time across the VHA's XR network, the use cases are really, the possibilities are endless. And there's incredible interest among our veterans right now. And as, as everyone on this call has said, we want to make sure that our veterans are driving the solutions that we're pursuing. We want to make sure that, that it's, we're providing this personalized precision medicine where we can. And XR is, has been no different in that. But VR can only succeed when leadership is brought into it. Leadership buy-in can't be understated. We have been very fortunate to, to find that to be relatively easy particularly for any of our um, leadership who are also veterans or who have experienced virtual reality in their own personal lives, you know, from having teenagers who have it or, or other family members who are just interested in the space. It very easily, you know, sells itself, for lack of a better way to say it. But having that leadership buy-in is critical because if not, you're dead in the water, right? We have frontline staff that are really driving these solutions, and we want to help and support them however we can as a network. But if we aren't getting the buy-in from our program offices that support these initiatives, then, then we have a very hard time of getting in place the right policies and protocol to find the right funding and to get the right communication and buy-in for the successes that we have if the leadership isn't on board. So that's been critical to the process. With VHA, Harzan works in the field to implement these new technologies and create best practices after observing outcomes of new devices and medical solutions. He explains that quality care does not follow a one-size-fits-all model. To effectively treat patients, providers must create solutions that keep patient choice in the forefront of care. The idea of best practices from technology is an interesting one. And it even there's a lot of bias, I think, that goes into our collective assumption that you know, newer is always going to be more optimal. Technology is really going to you know, always drive care forward in a meaningful way. And I think all of us think that's true. Uh, that's the thesis that we're, we're operating under. But, you know, for us, for me, I think, you know, when we think about it from the perspective of the individual patient, and then when we take into account the heterogeneity and not just technology adoption, you could, you know, look at data that says, you know, some, I forget the exact number, but you know, two thirds, if not more, of American adults own a smartphone, and you know the, rap, the I think the fastest growing segment of the population is really the oldest adults. Uh, I think age 75 and older. This is I think data from AARP, and so those numbers are true. But what they don't reflect is the heterogeneity that we have to deal with when it comes to actually delivering a you know virtual first, you know patient facing intervention. You know when taking into account, for example, a large number of rural veterans and very rural veterans that live without, you know, access to data and broadband. You take into account, you know, the difference between asking a patient, you know, check your email or your the news on your smartphone 
uh, versus engage with your care team and uh, you know check your vitals and you know do all type uh, do all types of health related tasks with technology that are you know uh, that can be a bit more complex. So you know I think in terms of best practices, what we've learned. I think just primarily from the pandemic of last year, when we had really no option besides remote care, uh, much of it being driven by virtual uh, solutions, was that it's not a one-size-fits-all. I think it definitely provides us value, and it did uh, tremendously last year, and it continues to do so. But there's a lot of patients who uh, either are not well-suited or definitely need a lot more support than just, um, you know, here's an app and here's a smartphone, you know, including, you know, face-to-face or, you know, in-person care in the home or in the clinic or at the medical center. So I think those are the best practices right now that, you know, on the ground, I think, you know, our team in Atlanta uh, with our virtual rehab program are really thinking deeply about, which is, you know, who are the best suited patients for, you know, uh, a virtual program and, you know, who are the early adopters really? And then, you know, how do we kind of expand from there in a way that, you know, keeps patient choice in the forefront of where healthcare is going with regards to technology? Because I think, the, the last thing that we want, and we hear this uh, frequently, are, you know, patients either, and this is not a VA-only, you know, situation, but patients either explicitly or implicitly sort of feeling that they, you know, need to adopt or and, and use technology more or else they won't be able to engage with their healthcare. And that's not a precedent that we want to set. Uh, we want to really let patients be the ones driving the decision in terms of, you know, what works best for them when it comes to receiving their care while doing it safely. So I think, you know, again, going back to COVID, there really weren't many options. But now that we have more options of how we provide care, we really want to be uh, methodical and intentional in how we're you know, delivering virtual solutions uh, to patients uh, in an equitable way uh, that's also effective. When developing best practices, veterans' feedback serves as a pillar for innovation. By using data on veterans' needs, VHA's innovation ecosystem is able to determine product use for veterans, then create a pathway to build upon the digital health products that are most helpful to the patient. So we've started by asking what products veterans are already using and trusting to support their health and wellness needs and effectively use that data to to drive more personalized medicine. So given that there's 24 million veterans in the United States, that would naturally lead us to a lot of really cool technologies like AR, XR, VR. If we just listen and learn and then try to look at those impacts, how can we incorporate veteran energy, interests, and data into the care that we deliver and ask if the use of any piece of technology is helping in improving the quality of care into better outcomes at a cost that scales, not just for one veteran, but for, for many more veterans. And if veterans are already using a device or mobile apps or VR in large numbers, we can effectively build a pragmatic trial to ensure the quality of those technologies. Because if veterans aren't using something, it doesn't matter how amazing the model or statistics say it could be. Biometrics in particular point to smartwatches and fitness trackers. And given my product background, where uh, there was really a natural question for us in our work in the VHA innovation ecosystem. Given the cost of these technologies, usually they're about $50 to $300. It's about equivalent to one office visit a year. Have we looked at the value curves of moving more, sleeping better, stressing less on overall healthcare? So with things like wearables used by over 30 million Americans today, the numbers suggest that a lot of veterans are already users. And with the time series data stretching back years, it's almost like a time machine to a time before the pandemic 
looking at the impacts of the pandemic and now coming out of the pandemic on questions of resilience and mental health, how can we tie that data to daily life concerns? So it allows us to really stay very, very focused on the impacts on veterans. And we don't have to get complicated in the statistical models or techniques that we're using. You know, we can be very focused on the needs of veterans. And this is really the questions that got us started into how we can better support veterans while we evaluate and assure the quality of digital health products that they are already using. We want to enable our veterans to make a lot of these decisions. We want to know what they want and, and how they would like to engage with their care. We will always have you know, populations of veterans who don't want to engage with technology and don't want to you know, do virtual visits and things like that. And we don't want to take away that option for them. But for those who do, we want to be able to invite those opportunities into our system. I think one of the ways that we stay connected and, and know what's coming next, while we also want to participate in defining what's coming next, is exactly what we've just been talking about. And that's our collaborations. We collaborate with, with industry and academia and, and other government agencies. And that's been incredibly powerful to make sure that we are all staying on the same page and moving forward in, in a unified fashion on behalf of our veterans and, and healthcare in general. We want to be a part of it, of participating as things move forward and move forward quickly. But as I said, not just jumping in with what other people are doing it, but ourselves defining it on behalf of our veterans. What I've been really inspired and motivated by is how much um, veterans are positioned to be co-innovators alongside us. I mean, I think we kind of each touched on that. But these are folks that are usually pretty trained in highly technical fields, and they step in really interested in how to better understand the health and the wellness challenges that they face. They want to try new things, and being positioned to be you know, the leading healthcare system in the country, veterans are, are right there with us to help us figure things out, where there are especially areas that are emerging with technology. Um, we can work together with them. And we're certainly seeing that energy in digital health that, you know, because these are often technologies that are used and bought by veterans with their families and friends, it allows us to, to lean in and listen and learn from the things that they are already using or want to be using as part of their care. So I think the challenge we certainly face at VA is that when we put out, you know, an announcement or, or a way that we're trying to do something, I've really been amazed by how much interest there is in veterans sort of being a part of that from a very early stage. And then, frankly, how patient they are as we kind of work through the challenges in doing things that have never been done before. Um, so that's both exciting, but also where uh, it's a true partnership model, um, veterans as co-innovators alongside us. And, and, and I hope we can you know, find uh, that path forward in a way that then can uplift all veterans. So they helped as the early adopters, but uh, ultimately what we've been able to accomplish is improve standards of care uh, for every veteran because they certainly deserve you know, that leading light of where innovation takes us. As technology advances, Harzan says that his focus will remain on how new treatments or tools can continue to support veterans and address the gaps in the current healthcare system. Technology is going to keep on advancing. We're all going to, you know, at some point end up living in the matrix. And I think the question really is, you know, um, how much, how much, you know, choice and uh, value can we 
derived from technology as it continues to advance, you know, at a speed that, you know, many of us really can't even control. And that's the nature of technology is that it's, you know, going to be continuously evolving and improving, just not healthcare, but we're not affecting healthcare, but every aspect of our lives. So, you know, I think for me, it's more about just trying to be as mindful as we can be to make sure that, you know, we really keep the focus on the patient. And that, you know, includes thinking deeply about whether technology is the right answer for individual patients or not. But, you know, I think for all of us who really think that there are gaps in the healthcare continuum where technology, whether it's, you know, mobile health or uh, cloud computing, AI, machine learning, you know, you name it, can fill in those gaps. You know, we want to be able to pounce on those things. Uh, And the VA, I think, is better poised than any other system, you know, really in the world to, you know, begin to test and then, you know, scale uh, these new approaches, you know, effectively. For a lot of us who aren't veterans ourselves, like myself, but, you know, this is a group of individuals who, you know, I, I typically say pathologically, that's probably not the right word, but are just inclined to volunteer for things. I mean, that's why they're veterans, because they signed up when, you know, nobody else wanted to uh, or was able to. And I think that that spirit is kind of what drives all the great things that Rob says that they're, you know, uh, willing to do with us as partners. But I think we, we all try and stay mindful of the fact that that's what they are inclined to do is to basically, you know, stand up and raise their hands and say, I'll do it. And it's exciting for us and we really appreciate it. But I think we're all, you know, also trying to be very mindful of, you know, uh, not, not uh, letting uh, ourselves lose sight of that really valuable uh, aspect because uh, you don't get that uh, with patients or with people really anywhere else. That kind of just, you know, def- by, like the default answer is typically just a yes, I'll do it. And it kind of throws you off uh, a lot of times, but uh, it's really inspiring. And, you know, I think that's probably the best thing that I've gotten to experience as a clinician in the VA is just taking care of working with the patients because that's really what drives it. And we all, you know, healthcare, you know, the running mantra is, you know, it's really patient centric and we do it for the patients. And, you know, we all believe that, but in the VA, it really takes on a whole different meaning with the mission of the organization. And I think, you know, that's what drives me. And I'm sure that's what drives all of us is, you know, that, that innate spirit in this really, you know, really remarkable group of individuals. Moving forward, VHA's innovation ecosystem will move from a system-based model of care to a veteran-centered method to spearhead co-development and create care models that truly meet the needs of the veteran. This is the transformative change from my perspective is healthcare has the potential to truly move from a provider or system-based model of care, i.e. what's convenient for, for providers and for systems, through technology and, and through the initiative and passion of veterans and consumers, patients, to being a truly veteran-centered method of experiencing wellness. And that's what's incredibly inspiring about this work is that as Rob mentioned, Rosh mentioned, and Anne mentioned, we get to co-design and co-develop a system of the future led by the people who are experiencing the system. And it's incredibly powerful. If you haven't already, check out the HealthCast episode from Season 1 featuring the Innovation Ecosystem's Ryan Vega, who provided more on the biomedical advances this group undertook.
Thank you for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe with your favorite podcast app or listen to more at governmentciomedia.com. Until next time. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris and Adam Patterson. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.